It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to Know It All, the ABCs of Education. Listen to us live every Tuesday at 10 a.m. or at any time from the comfort of your computer at www.blogtalkradio.com slash knowitall. Today's show is a featured show on the Blog Talk Radio website, so be sure to follow us at blogtalkradio.com. At Know It All, we have candid conversations about the education issues that impact your community and the real-life solutions to education issues that you face every day. We aim to make you a know-it-all about education law, policy, and practice as it affects you. I am your host, Allison R. Brown of Allison Brown Consulting, ABC. I am a civil rights attorney with expertise in the laws that require equity in public education regardless of students' background or characteristics. Keep up with me at allisonbrownconsulting.com. My guest host is the lovely Alexis J. Smith of Entitled to Educate. Good morning, Alexis. Good morning, Allison. She is a community engagement and parent empowerment specialist. Check her out at EntitledToEducate.com. Today we are talking about police in schools. On Friday, as we all know, the people of Newtown, Connecticut, and by extension all of us, global citizens, suffered an unthinkable and horrific tragedy. Babies, six and seven years old, and many of their caretakers and teachers were brutally murdered after a madman forced his way into the school and opened fire. Here's a clip from PBS News yesterday about the massacre, including coverage of President Obama's remarks at an interfaith vigil in Newtown, Connecticut, on Sunday night. The first of the funerals took place today for the victims of the massacre at an elementary school. Ray Suarez begins our coverage. Flowers streamed into funeral homes around Newtown as the shock and horror of Friday gave way to grim rituals of grief. Mourners in black waited under gray skies to attend services for Jack Pinto and Noah Posner, two of the 21st graders killed at Sandy Hook Elementary. And everywhere, it was clear the townspeople are still reeling. A somber weekend had concluded with last night's vigil at Newtown High School about a mile away from the scene of the killings. Police and emergency personnel got a standing ovation as they entered the auditorium. President Obama met privately with the victims' families before addressing the shaken crowd. I can only hope it helps for you to know that you're not alone in your grief, that our world, too, has been torn apart, that all across this land of ours, we have wept with you. We've pulled our children tight. And you must know that whatever measure of comfort we can provide, we will provide. Whatever portion of sadness that we can share with you to ease this heavy load, we will gladly bear it. Newtown, you are not alone. The weekend also brought new details in the investigation. Police confirmed the rampage began when 20-year-old Adam Lanza shot and killed his mother inside their home. 
It turned out Nancy Lanza was a gun enthusiast. Her son took some of her weapons and drove to Sandy Hook Elementary, where he forced his way into the school and opened fire. In all, he killed 26 people there, six adults and 20 first graders. All of the children were <coughs> six and seven years old, and all were shot multiple times. State Police Lieutenant Paul Vance said today Lanza still had hundreds more rounds when he killed himself as officers were closing in. I can't speculate what would have occurred. That would be wrong on my part. I can tell you that uh, the, the faculty staff in that school uh, did everything that they, they possibly could to protect those children. I can tell you that the first responders that got to that scene with the active shooter team entered that school and saved many human lives. And I can tell you it broke our hearts and we couldn't save them all. Lanza's motive remains a mystery. He had no apparent connection to the school, and his mother was not a teacher there, as early reports indicated. The school itself is now a crime scene, with no indication if or when it might reopen. I can't even tell you what that means. I don't know how long that'll be. I'm suspecting months. And uh, at that time, it's up to the town officials to determine exactly uh, what's appropriate with that facility and with that building. Meanwhile, schools in two nearby towns, Ridgefield and Redding, Connecticut, were placed on lockdown this morning after reports of a suspicious person. And school systems elsewhere also asked for more police patrols. The governor also called for a moment of silence and for churches to ring their bells for the shooting victims Friday morning. What we will not do on this show is second-guess the incredibly difficult decisions around school safety that the administrators at Sandy Hook Elementary School had to make. We will, however, ask broader questions about whether police, metal detectors, and the like in schools are the answer to protect our students. Who are we protecting students from? Each other? Outsiders? To help us try to bring some sense to all of this, we are pleased to welcome to the show today Mr. Mo Kennedy, the Executive Director of the National Association of School Resource Officers, NASRO. Mr. Kennedy is a former police officer for the Hoover, Alabama Police Department, where he was the liaison to the Hoover Pub Public Schools. We are grateful for his guidance today. Good morning, Mo. Good morning, Allison. Thank you for having me. And uh, before we go any further, I, you know, I first, on behalf of NASRO, uh, want to extend our sincere sympathy uh, to the community of, of Newtown, Connecticut. Um, you know, as as we're having this conversation this morning, um, the folks there are still burying loved ones, and um, I'm very mindful of that. I know that uh, these conversations have to be had, um, but uh, but that is uh, forefront on my mind this morning. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, Mo, let's take a step back and talk about what school resource officers are. You and I have talked about the need for training of law enforcement officers who work in school buildings. Training is one of the things that, that sets true school resource officers apart from police officers who are merely assigned to school buildings. Will you define for us what the ideal school resource officer is? Yes, I, I'd love to, and I think there are three things to look at. And the first one is an interesting one because it's something that I, I really dealt with a lot yesterday, and that is for folks to understand what a school resource officer is. I had a lot of questions yesterday in regards to, well, should school resource officers be armed? And my response is, well, do you do we really want to be separating a law enforcement officer from 
uh, a firearm uh, because uh, unfortunately, you know, as a police officer for 25 years, that was a tool that I had to have. Uh, thankfully, I never had to use it, and I'm so thankful for that. But you know we're sworn to to uh you know protect the community we serve so first it's important to understand that a school resource officer is a sworn law enforcement officer they're armed uh, they're not security guards uh the second thing is and, and this is critical also that um for the ideal school resource officer it has to be the right person um I've been involved in, in uh, school-based policing since uh, about 1998, and one of the things that, that I've determined, uh, I guess through my, my own um, insights and, and talking to others, is that I believe there are about 10% of law enforcement officers who are really cut out for this role. Uh, it, it really is one of the most unique uh, forms of law enforcement. Um, it's, uh, it really is uh, the epitome of, of, of uh, community-based policing. Uh, it's a great model, uh, but it is very unique, and it's not for everyone. And then the third thing is also critical. The officer uh, must be properly trained to work in a school environment. Uh, NASRO has been in the business of SRO training for uh, going on 23 years now. And during this time, we, we've seen a lot of successful school-based policing programs uh, when these three things exist. Again, the right person, um, understanding what an SRO is, and, and the person being properly trained. Mm-hmm. So what does proper training of a school resource officer entail? Well, as a good example, uh, our basic SRO training course, uh, which again is about to celebrate 23 years, is a 40-hour course that's based on what we call the SRO triad. And what that means is if you can imagine a a triangle, at the base of the triangle, excuse me, would be the role of law enforcement because that has to be the the foundation uh, for what this person does. Um, and within that uh, role of law enforcement, uh, we train uh, in, in the training course on things such as roles and responsibilities. We deal a lot with school legal issues um, uh, regarding things like search and seizure. We even deal with special education law. Um, <clears throat> we train on crisis management and on school safety. But the other two sides of that triangle, or the triad, if you will, is education and informal counseling. Education, the education side is that that we want SROs to be engaged with students in the educational process. So we find a lot of value uh, in SROs uh, being called on as a a guest speaker in the role of guest speaker in the classroom. Um, We teach them about classroom management and about presentation techniques. And so that enables them to get in the classroom and, and educate students on things such as, you know, the dangers of drinking and driving, um, <clears throat> you know, the dangers of uh, prescription drug abuse. Um, lately, we've been dealing a lot with the education process with distracted driving uh, at the high school level. And then finally, informal counseling, the other part of the triad, uh, where as a police officer, if you're doing your job, whether out on the street or as an investigator or whatever it is, 
you're always involved in informal counseling. You're, you're always trying to counsel and help people, you know, on things that they need to know about. So, uh, you know, some of the blocks we teach for that is uh, special education. We want SROs to have a, a good, solid understanding of special needs students and, and what that's all about. Uh, we train on adolescent emotional issues and child abuse. And then finally, we offer additional courses that include advanced SRO, SRO management, and active shooter for SRO, where we actually train SROs how to respond tactically to an active shooter situation to try and bring it to an end. And as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, and as we all know by now, on Friday, we bore witness to the worst school shooting in American history. What are your thoughts, especially in light of the, the active shooter training that you have? What are your um, You know, I, I think the two words that come to mind are shocked and horrified. Um, you know, the high school shootings in the mid to late 90s and, and on into the early part of the 2000s were, were horrible, uh, horrible loss of life. Um, and and certainly a lot of things uh, changed, I guess, reforms and, and different policies and those type of things changed as a result of that. But but a shooting like this in an elementary school is just uh, has just brought it to a different level. And, and I, I'm concerned that, you know, to some degree, I don't mean this as a political statement, but to some degree it, it speaks very loudly the current state of our society. Mm-hmm. I, I was, I was um, uh, looking at, and I've heard this quote before. I believe that President Kennedy used it several times, but it, it's originally from a, a man by the name of Edmund Burke. And it's, uh, it says that all that is necessary for the triumph of evil is that good men, and I would add good women, do nothing. Uh, I think we're all kind of familiar with that with that particular quote one way or the other. So um, I, I guess you know what what that makes me think of is that there are a lot of good folks that have a lot of good ideas uh, about how to uh, bring an in, in improvement, not just to school security, but but in, in dealing with mental health issues or whatever the issues are. And so I am, if nothing else, looking forward to the, the conversations that take place over the next weeks and months um, to try and, and help some of these situations. Alexis, as a, as a parent and, and community empowerment specialist, what are your thoughts today? Um, I'm, I'm still very speechless, quite honestly. Um, you know, the uh, tragedy on Friday actually happened on the anniversary of a, you know, as uh, Mo mentioned, a 90s school shooting, you know, on my high school campus. Um, and it's in bystander. You know, to this day, I still don't know all the ins and outs of, you know, what happened. I don't know that anybody does in terms of the, the underlying story. But nevertheless, a friend, you know, a, a friendly, well-educated, well-mannered young man lost his life in front of my high school. And um, it, it, it changed everybody. It changed all of us forever. And, uh, you know, so my... Um, high school classmates and I via Facebook were actually in the process of, you know, sharing our memories of, of him and, and that particular day when this news broke. And it, it broke me. You know, even right now I stutter a little bit to uh, to try to express my feelings about it. And my family and I spent time over the weekend, you know, allowing ourselves to deal in and discuss our feelings, you know, our fears and our faith. 
uh, you know, but come Monday morning, you know, we had to put our game faces back on. And you know, my husband, who was a, a dutiful Baltimore City High School teacher and athletic coach, you know, got himself together and decided he was going to, you know, face this day and, and lead his students uh, through whatever they needed from him. Uh, and as I prepared, you know, my children, my high schooler and my elementary school children trying to have conversations about this, you know, I still stuttered. Uh, and I found myself at a loss of words for how to coach them through uh, what they might see and hear um, in the immediate aftermath of the Newtown shooting. Um, but, you know, even more so, I struggled when it came to coaching them through how they might recognize and respond to potential and, heaven forbid, direct threats in their own schools and classrooms. And, you know, Mo, as you have introduced to us um, the SRO training triad and talking about education, and that leads right to, um, you know, something I hope that you will uh, address for us next, and that is, you know, kind of um, school assembly style. You know, what, what do you say to, to students? Uh, you know, what advice do you give them that, you know, not only helps, you know, themselves and their peers deal in terms of crisis prevention and crisis response, but how, how can they help the SRO teams in their schools? How, how can the students work with you um, to, to, again, pre prevent and, and respond to things like this if it's possible? That is an excellent question. And one of the things, the thing, not one of the things, the thing I loved the most when I was an SRO was working directly with students and especially the ideas that they have about things. And one of the things that we do in our training is when we're training SROs on school safety issues and crisis planning issues, one of the things that comes out of that is the importance of every school having a school safety team. Uh, one of the things we know is that the SRO is just one component of school safety. They can't do it on their own. The principal can't do it on their own. It, it's a team. It's a collaborative effort. And one of the things that we encourage SROs to do is, is to go back and, and be a part of taking a leadership role in, in their school safety team. But two of the key components that get left out that we remind SROs about and anyone that will listen is that parents and students need to be a part of that team. Um, you know, the, the people that we're tasked with protecting, the majority of the people in the school building are students. And I want them, our association wants them to have a voice in what we're doing to protect them. And we find that they come up with some great ideas. There was one particular incident I, I would share with you for a, few, a few years ago. We were doing a lockdown drill. And this particular classroom of students, they had a substitute teacher in the room, and it was this teacher's very first time ever to substitute. These students had taken such a proactive role in their own protection and they knew what to do that they took over for the teacher and and took some necessary precautions to secure that room during the lockdown drill. I, I was blown away. Uh, and, and so it, it really is students are so bright, and so we want them to be part of that process. Mo, NASRO has members all over the world. What are some of the countries that you've worked with, and how do they compare to the United States in terms of school violence and in terms of school resource officers? 
Well, uh, and that's a great question. Also, we we have uh, we have worked with uh, SROs in Canada, uh, the Philippines, uh, Japan, uh, the country of Georgia, uh, also Guam and the Virgin Islands. Even those though those are U.S. territories, it, it still uh, is a, a different type of environment. Uh, and just recently in September, uh, Nazro uh, trained the very first. Um, SROs in the country of South Africa in the city of Cape Town. Uh, so uh, we, we've experienced some, some great opportunities to share what works well in the United States with, uh, with SROs in other countries. Mm-hmm. So I want to be completely frank with, with both of you. Um, I'm, I'm very worried, and I think that, of course, this tragedy is unthinkable. I am a parent. I'm a mom to two young children, um, and I cannot begin to imagine what the parents of the 20 children who were murdered are going through right now or what they experienced when they showed up at school and their their children did not come out of that building. Um, I have been teary-eyed and prayerful all weekend. I- I'm also very worried In 1999, Columbine happened, and before Columbine, zero tolerance as a a concept, just kind of related to school and school safety, was something that had been mostly a federal initiative to keep loaded guns away from schools. But after Columbine, zero tolerance exploded, and the policy reactions had a lot to do with where we are right now with respect to a school-to-prison pipeline that excludes children from the educational environment because of, among other things, zero-tolerance school discipline policies. So I'm worried about children of color in particular bearing the burden of policy decisions that are made to address tragedies like this one. Um, On Wednesday, December 12th, the Senate Judiciary Committee Subcommittee on the Constitution, Civil Rights, and Human Rights convened a hearing about ending the school-to-prison pipeline. Several witnesses testified about the school-to-prison pipeline, which is a phrase that's used to describe a phenomenon. The literal interpretation means that children, mostly black, Native American, and Latino, are arrested out of school by police, and figuratively means that children who are excluded from school as punishment for minor infractions, meaning they're suspended or expelled from school, are more likely to end up in the criminal justice system. A recent report released by the Justice Policy Institute found that, quote, while reported incidents of violence and crime in schools are at the lowest level since the early 1990s, arrests and referrals of students to the juvenile justice system by school resource officers are increasing. And I'm betting that a large number of those school resource officers, Mo, are untrained, as you have defined that for us, and don't have the, the compassionate lens that you um, have described. I want to play for you a clip of... Edward Ward, um, a former student at Orr High School in Chicago. He's now a sophomore at DePaul University in Chicago, and he testified before the subcommittee at last week's Senate hearing and also in front of an audience of more than 400 people. Let's take a listen. I grew up on the west side of Chicago. Poverty and violence are prevalent in my community. Many of us come from families where it's a constant struggle to pay bills. I've seen how my fellow students did all they could to focus on getting an education, despite the economic hardships they experienced at home. Many of them were also taking care of their own siblings and themselves. When I got to high school, I began to see that my fellow classmates were were constantly being suspended from school. When my classmates were suspended, 
they would disappear for days, and when they were kicked out, they would disappear even for weeks. What was most shocking to me was discovering that they were being suspended for minor infractions, the kinds of infractions that shouldn't merit more than a stern warning or reminder. Unreasonable punishments like these were not rare at my school. My classmates and I saw many other students served with two-day suspensions because, for example, they weren't carrying the proper identification around their necks. Some of my friends would come to school late, sometimes by no fault of their own. I remember one of my peers coming to me saying that she was held in detention and could not be permitted to class because she came late. But it was because she couldn't leave her little brother at home alone until her parents came home from work. Other students were homeless and had trouble getting bus cars to come from far off places where they stayed. My school's environment was very tense. The halls were full of school security officers whose only purpose seemed to be to serve students with detentions or suspensions. This was nerve-wracking to me because although I was an honor student, I felt constantly in a state of alert, afraid to make even the smallest mistake or create a noise that could enable the security officers to serve me with a detention. Instead of feeling like I could trust them, I felt like I couldn't go to them for general security issues because I would first be interrogated before anything would get done. Our school even had a police processing center, so police could book students then and there. The officers don't get any special training to be in these schools, so they don't treat us like we're misbehaving. They treat us like criminals. Every time there was a fight, the police would step in and handcuff students even when there was no weapons involved. Some would be sent to the police station in school. A few or some never came back to school after that. I could slowly see the determination to get an education fade from the faces of my peers because they were convinced that they no longer mattered. Until recently, I had a cousin who was attending or. However, he never finished because he was suspended with so much frequency that he eventually dropped out. He had a problem at home. You see, my cousin's mother is a drug addict, and as a young person, he didn't quite know how to deal with that. So he started acting out in class. He was what you would consider to be a class clown. The school believed that by suspending him, it would allow him more time to think about his misbehavior. Instead, it gave him more time alone on the street and made it easier for him to simply turn to selling drugs and make easy money. Eventually, my cousin was arrested. When many young people like my cousin feel unwelcome and under siege in their own school, they end up on the streets, in the criminal justice system, or worse. I think that schools need to throw out the assumption that young people are all dangerous or a threat. They must work to understand the issues that students face every day. We need solutions, not suspensions. I hope you understand that my experience at Orr was not an anomaly, but it is what is happening in schools across the country, particularly in communities of color. I would hope in the near future that we will have undone this mistake, that my children will never have to feel anything but welcome in their school. But a problem that my generation did not cause cannot be solved by my generation alone. So, Mo, it seems clear to me that the what Mr. Ward is talking about and the the officers that he's he's describing weren't the models uh, were not the models of community partnership or engaging as equals with parents and students that you talked about earlier. Um, is my concern here valid? What do you think? Oh, I think there is validity to your concern. And what's interesting, and I'll try not to take up the remaining 35 minutes with my response here, but what's interesting is that last Wednesday I I attended uh, the hearing uh, where Mr. Ward spoke along with uh, several other witnesses. And um, it it was uh, also, I should mention, that NASRO submitted written testimony uh, for that hearing. We're, We're concerned as well. Uh, there were some things that he mentioned in his testimony uh, that are so far from from the uh, model that that Nazaro um, uh, uses. It's it's just incredible, uh, and it's clear to me that what he experienced was 
not anything close to what uh, uh, to what we we work with. He mentioned school security officers um, handing out uh, detentions, I believe it was, and and that's something that uh, you know when you talk about school security officers, usually you're talking about uh, unarmed uh, and likely untrained individuals, individuals who are really not trained to work in a school environment, and it has nothing to do with building relationships. Um, he mentioned a police processing center in the school. That's um, that's just unfathomable to me. Fathomable to to me. Uh, I, I believe that he did experience that. I'm not doubting his testimony at all. But I, I just uh, I've never experienced anything like that, and I I hate that anyone would have to experience that. Um, you know, it, it really does become a matter of again the right person in the right job properly trained and properly motivated. Um, and, and I can assure you that where that's the case, you're going to have an SRO who works hard to show restraint. And relationship building is the key. Uh, there was a, another witness that, that testified in that particular hearing uh, who we're actually working closely with. And, and he uh, he uh works hard on a process uh, referred to as restorative justice. And an SRO who is, who is worth, the, worth the salt is, is already engaged in restorative justice. Um, I, I can assure you that, that uh, SROs who are doing the job the right way really want to try and avoid arresting students if at all possible. Uh, they want the opportunity to work with students. Uh, Judge Teske, who is the, the person I'm referring to that was the witness, um, he shared uh, a story uh, of an SRO in the state of Georgia who uh, clearly was properly trained and properly motivated. And what had occurred, and I'm paraphrasing, is that uh, a female student had gotten out of control in a classroom. Uh, she was throwing chairs. She was cursing. She was um, really inconsolable. Uh, the teacher called for the SRO because of the violent behavior of the student. Well, the SRO responded, and she escorted the student uh, down to the administrative office. She didn't handcuff the student. She didn't have to be physical with the student. She escorted her down to the, the administrative offices. And, and clearly the SRO could have arrested the student for disorderly conduct, but she knew that there was something deeper that was going on here. So she worked with the student for well over an hour, talking with her, calming her down, you know, trying to find out what was going on. And finally, the student confessed to her that she had been um, she had been on an ongoing basis being sexually assaulted by her mother's living boyfriend. This led to a case being made uh, on the boyfriend for sexual assault, uh, which led to his conviction. So the point was, you know, where there's a well-trained SRO in place, things like this can happen. And instead of taking that student to jail, um, a case was solved. And the SRO also helped get that student uh, to the help that, that she needed. Yes, and I I also um, attended that, participated in that hearing um, last week, and I was, I think I was most impressed with, um, a real interest in solutions and a real, um, a, a very robust discussion around solutions to the school-to-prison pipeline, including Judge Teske's 
testimony about his protocol that, that um, is being replicated all over the country, um, and that protocol requires that stakeholders be at the table for conversations about how we can eliminate the school to prison pipeline and make sure that we are all supporting we are playing we are all playing an equal and active role in supporting our children and their academic success and I think restorative justice which I believe came out of actually a criminal justice context and has been utilized in schools recently um, is one of those very, very real solutions to um, what many of our, our children are facing. Uh, we're going to open up the phone lines right now for callers with questions. You can call into the show at 347-202-0911. The chat room is also open at blogtalkradio.com. Alexis, what do you think from your perspective as a parent and as a parent and community empowerment specialist about um, what we've talked about today, the school-to-prison pipeline and police and schools? What are your thoughts? Well, You know, I think that, you know, we obviously as parents and, you know, community members, we are, you know, not happy with the over-reliance on, you know, the disciplinary practices that remove students from school. But I think even in using the example that Mo just shared with us about, you know, this uh, young woman who was dealing with, you know, very traumatic issues at home and in her personal life and was showing out at school, um, you know, there is, also a tendency, particularly for repeat offenders, and I use that word offender cautiously, but we're talking about, you know, the offenses here in question, excessive absences um, in classroom, disorderly behavior, disrespect toward um, authority figures and peers, that those repeat offenses often cause um, administrators to look home, you know, and I'm understanding now from the conversation that's coming out about the school-to-prison pipeline that it's also increasing the placement of children into foster care facilities. Um, And furthermore, the research then shows that once they go into the foster care program, um, their likelihood for becoming prison-bound also increases. So I would imagine, again, you know, with the example that Mo just shared with us, you know, um, I am, I guess, encouraged that the school was able to identify, you know, the underlying issue in this case and that, you know, there was some level of of justice, um, you know, provided. But, you know, there's still in my mind as a parent and on the community end, there's still the child, there's still the mother, you know, and I'm not asking for a direct answer to what happened there, but there the question remains. You know, did removing, dealing with the issue with the, you know, the uh, sexual offender, address all of the issues with the student? Did that take care of all of her in-classroom outbursts? You know, was she allowed to stay in the home with the mother? Was there counseling provided there? So I think, um, you know, therein lies a, a, another level, I won't say a deeper level, but another area of concern is, is what is happening to the family structure here and how, if at all, those um, ills can be addressed through systems and services that are offered in the school. Um, I did find out that in 2007, the ACLU released a best practices report for dismantling the school-to-prison pipeline, and Mo, you are probably familiar with it, if not directly, then I'm sure, in terms of what the best practices are. You know, you've named several uh, already um, as it relates to parents and community members being a very valuable asset 
to, uh, you know, school safety and, and school wellness overall. Um, and for listeners who are not familiar with the report, I'll be more than happy to uh, post the link on the Entitled to Educate Facebook page as soon as the show is over. Uh, but from a logistical, a realistic and logistical standpoint um, from the SRO team in the building, Mo, how welcoming is a secure school building to ongoing parent and community involvement in the school during the school day on a daily and, you know, maybe open basis? Do they work together? You know, the, the ones that I've been engaged with are, are very open to that. I think they have to be. Um, and I think that uh, you know it it it's going to be hard to succeed if you don't have positive parent involvement. And you know that's why I think it's so critical when you when you talk about school safety teams that there be parental involvement on that. And one of the things I you know we also uh, really preach to you know these new SROs especially is the importance of building relationships with parents. Um, we try to give them tools to use to go uh, to school assemblies where you know parents are gonna be there, uh, PTO meeting, uh, you know, open house, uh, those type things. Uh, it, it's so important for uh, SROs, not just SROs, but, but uh, for everybody in school administration to be engaged with parents. Absolutely. What do you feel about? I'm sorry, Allison. May, may I ask a follow-up question? Yes, please. Okay. <laughs> More specifically, the open door policy. You know, um, I think most schools, at least those that I'm familiar with directly, you know, you have a buzz-in system, but you know, it's not necessarily high tech. They don't. I don't believe they can see me. They may, but and that that would be fine with me. But you know, there's a buzzer at the front door, and then I enter the building with the um, trust of the school administration that I'm going to come right in through the front door and walk past two hallway options to the front office where I will sign myself in, state my business, and then be authorized to move throughout the school building. Um, does it always happen that way? And, you know, how, again, do we balance that open-door policy with the need for security in the school? Yeah, that's a good question because that, that is a difficult balance. And, you know, one of the things we're talking about here kind of is, is finding the balance between the school being a, an open community-type place uh, to the other side of it becoming a prison. And so you have to find a healthy balance. One of the things that, that seems to work well in, in, in schools uh, that, that I've been around lately is a, a very reasonable visitor entry management system uh, so that there is a receptionist, um, you know, as you come into the front door, there, there's no question about where you have to go first, and that you sign in by one means or another. There are some very, really inexpensive visitor entry management systems that are in use by some schools where uh, you present, you know, a government-issued ID uh, to the front desk, uh, even as a parent, uh, so that they're able to record who is in the building. And that helps in a lot of ways. It's not a big brother system, but it's more a system, let's say, if there were an emergency in the school, that the school would have some sense of of who the parents are that are in the building, who the visitors are that are in the building. But but the, the question about once you've signed in, um, you know, 
I, I would say as as schools become more familiar with particular parents, that uh, they're able maybe to give a you know a little more freedom to you know what the parents' role is and what they're doing and where they need to go. Um, I, I think that all comes down to relationship building issues. A reminder to call in with your questions. The phone number is three four seven two zero two zero nine one one. Again, that's three four seven two zero two zero nine one one. Mo, I have a question for you. Has have you and Nasro considered, um, and how have you considered incorporating child development training into your um, school resource officer training program? One of the blocks of training that we do is called Adolescent Emotional Issues, uh, where we do talk about some of the different levels of development and what to anticipate, you know, what to expect. Um, I think that, um, you know, the one of the other blocks we do, the special education piece is very critical, too, uh, from uh, maybe not a child development issue, but, but understanding why some children, uh, why their behavior may be the way it is. For instance, ADHD, uh, you know, there's a lot of officers that come into our training who are coming into this new assignment that may not really have a grasp of what ADHD is all about. Well, one of the important things that we're able to train them in is to understand that a child that uh, has ADHD is going to have a very difficult time following direction from you if you're giving them three or four things to do at once and the importance of taking it as a a slow step-by-step process when you're trying to communicate with a child that that may be dealing with that. And, of course, the SRO is not going to know who all the children are in a particular building that are dealing with that. But if they understand how a child with that tends to respond then once they come across a child that has that, they'll know better how to how to function with that child and how to communicate with them. Mm-hmm. I think um, one of the things that I certainly have observed in my um, my time working with um, schools and school districts and educators over the past few years, especially to focus on civil rights and education and the impact of, of punitive school discipline policies, including law enforcement referral. Um, one of the things that I've I have observed is that I think um, there is an over reliance on um, police departments who are not part of this this trained system of school resource officers that you uh, that you describe, Mo. And so you know w- what often happens is that police are called into the school building to confront a child who has been talking back to a teacher or. Um, has been, you know, disrespectful, but has not been engaging in conduct that would be considered criminal out on the street if an adult were engaging in the same behavior. Uh, And so I I definitely think that there is a need for educators to recognize that there are organizations such as yours, NASRO, that are providing training and information about school resource officers and about how to utilize uh, law enforcement officers in the school building, um, because I think that we've reached a, a point where there, you know, uh, many advocates are would like to see. I think the 
the removal of police officers from school buildings, but I think we've reached a point where we're not that's not going to happen, but we certainly can make sure that the police officers who are in school buildings have been properly trained in, as you say, special education law and what they are required to do in order to, to support students with special needs um, and, and in child development and adolescent behavior um, is another example. So I, I think that it's certainly important that we have this conversation about what schools can be doing to make sure that they are uh, appropriately engaging uh, with law enforcement officers in the school building. Um, and I wonder, Mo, if you would talk a little bit more about um, how you interact with the educators in the building. So uh, when NASRO comes in or a new school resource officer who's been trained comes into a school building, there's potentially um, you know, some overlap in responsibilities there. There's potentially a lot of stepping on toes, I guess, if you will, um, in terms of, you know, school counselors and, and you providing informal counseling and then school counselors wanting to do that as well or needing to do that in their roles, um, you know, existing security officers and teachers and with respect to classroom management. How do you, how does NASRO uh, advise navigating that and how do, you, how do school resource officers that, that have been trained by you um, navigate that? Well, I've got a couple of answers to that. And, and one of the things is that, that we've really worked hard to get the message across is that our training is also open to school administrators. Our membership is open to school administrators. We want them in our training and in our conferences badly. Um, and that does happen occasionally. And I'll tell you, as an instructor, former instructor for this association, I would get really excited when we would have a basic class and an SRO, a new SRO, would show up with their school administrator because I knew that that was really going to be a difference maker um, because the relationship is being built. And also during that week, not only is the SRO learning about what they should and shouldn't do, but the school administrator is learning how to properly utilize the SRO. One of the important things that, that we train is that the SRO is not the school disciplinarian, and they're not to be used in school disciplinary practices. And and that's that's critical. Now, does that – and I always like to kind of share this. Does that mean if I'm walking through the hall engaging with students and I see a student doing something they ought not do that I ignore it? No. It, it means I respond to it as any reasonable adult should – and and you know call it to their attention and 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 the great thing is when you've got relationships with students it's a lot easier to do that it's a lot easier to say hey you need to knock it off you know don't don't do that uh, and and there, when there's that mutual respect through a relationship many times students will they'll they'll understand that and uh, and so it's it's not we're talking about formal discipline SROs really should not be. Uh, engaged or involved in that. Mm -hmm. The call-in number is 347-202-0911. Again, the call-in number is 347-202-0911. Call in with your questions about police in schools um, and school security. Alexis, I wonder if you would, would share with us your thoughts about what the biggest takeaway is for parents with respect to uh, police in school and and school safety. 
I think it's, you know, um, join the conversation. Get in the game. You know, you ought to just like, uh, you know, you know who your child's principal and um, teacher is or teachers are. Um, My takeaway from this is that we now need to be familiar with who our school resource officers are and, you know, make sure that they, to the degree they can, you know, know who you are and who your children are and have them, um, you know, understand that you are, very vested in, you know, their child or your child's behavior in school. And, you know, not that you anticipate there being any problems, but, you know, again, the thing where you introduce yourself and make plain um, to your student and to their in-school authority figures that, you know, you are a part of that process, even if you are not in the building, um, you know, the same hours a day as they are, that you are uh, looking to be informed and will engage yourself in any and all, you know, necessary um, activities, um, hopefully mainly good, but those that require some disciplinary action, you know, the, uh, the school and the, the school resource officers and the students need to be very clear that the parents will be involved as well. So I think, if anything, that's probably the biggest takeaway is to still uh, reach out, introduce yourself, become a part of the process, and make sure that your school resource officer, and even if you don't have anyone who maintains that title, um, finding out who the uh, the disciplinary team is and, and what the typical processes are, familiarize yourself with them so that um, if a need does arise for you to become engaged in that type of uh, action, that you are aware of the, the key players and, and what the process should be as it relates to what it is in your particular situation. Again, the number to call in is 347-202-0911. That's 347-202-0911. I think our our listeners are a little shy this morning, and they're not calling in. I think it's a very difficult subject, Mo, and I I wonder if you might talk to us a little bit about how you um, work to to engage community members and to be how school resource officers should be working to be a liaison for um, between police departments and um, communities? Well, you know, as we're having this really open and honest discussion here, and I appreciate the opportunity for this, I think, first of all, when I hear some of these uh, negative stories about police interaction in schools, one of the things that that immediately concerns me and comes to my mind is that these are officers and maybe school administrators who have not had the opportunity to go through our training. And then the second thing that concerns me is that these may very well be communities, schools, departments that don't have the funding for training. So I I think, you know, in moving forward as discussions happen over the next few days, I'm hoping that some discussions might be had about funding for training. Uh, we all know that training is, is not free. It's not cheap. Um, uh, and and so uh, we need to, I hope, I hope we can look at creative ways uh, to help communities that are having these problems be able to fund training, because I, I don't think, and I don't think that the answer is to just, uh, from a blanket standpoint, say we're going to remove police officers from schools. Because I think there are as many 
negative stories as I've, I've heard shared, I think there are many more positive stories. Um, one of the things that I do want to mention, uh, kind of a shameless plug, if you don't mind, is that uh, we released a, a report that we're just referring to as the NASRO report um, just a couple of months ago, and it's called uh, To Protect and Educate. Um, the report is available uh, on our website uh, at www.nasro.org, and it's available to anyone that wants to go and read it. One of the things that the report talks about in great detail is the importance of, of uh, collaborative uh, efforts. Uh, and, and I think that uh, our report can shed a lot of light on you know, how to move forward and improve school-based policing in every community. Great. Well, that's it for now. Mo Kennedy is the Executive Director of the National Association of School Resource Officers, NASRO, www.nasro.org. You can find him on Facebook and LinkedIn. Thank you so much for joining us, Mo. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. And many thanks to our audience for joining us today. I also want to thank my wonderful guest host, Alexis Smith. Alexis, do you have any, any closing thoughts for our audience about police in schools and safety? Well, I think, you know, we just need to work with them. Um, you know, as we have all learned, thanks to the uh, the public hearing, you know, the pipeline from school to prison is, is not filled with violent, gunslinging, gangbanging students. I mean, you know, there are those, and... They are part of that, but that's that's not where the the backup. It's not what's being filled um, in the pipeline. And you know what is still in the pipeline, as we mentioned before. You know, excessive absence, and and things that I think parents can be uh, more proactive in helping to address, so that they don't quite become these major issues where school resource officers and other uh, administrators are taxed with dealing. Um, brings us back to square one, you know, of home training and village accountability for the character of the children that we're raising. You know, academic success is certainly a fine and necessary virtue, you know, but uh, to quote words that I've seen very recently shared of Theodore Roosevelt, to educate a man in mind and not in morals is to educate a menace to society. So, you know, I, I like to end with words of encouragement, and obviously uh, today is no different. You know, for families, you know, my encouragement is that we train our children with uh, example and leadership that builds up who they are as people with as much vigor as what they achieve as scholars and student athletes. And I think from there, we progress. Thank you very much. Um, I want to thank both of you for being here this morning and for helping us to um, work through where we are right now as a nation. Um, and I, I want to uh, implore all of us to proceed with caution right now. Uh, I think that there are a lot of very emotional responses that are happening naturally, and, and that is certainly understandable. Uh, I think that a, a focus on gun control is is the right focus. I think that a focus on putting more untrained police in schools is not, uh, and I, I think that it is important that we really think very carefully about how we ended up here. Um, and and uh, to Mo's point about you know this being a, a larger statement about society as a whole, 
Um, I, I think that's absolutely true. And how did we get to this point? Um, but also, how did we get to the point where we now are criminalizing children for talking back to teachers and for disrespect in the classroom and for uh, school uniform violations and even as as um, I've heard told flatulence in the classroom. How are we allowing children, primarily children of color, to be removed from the educational environment um, for behaviors that that would not be deemed criminal in any other context? Um, and and how are we ensuring safety instead of imposing um, a police state on children in their their schools? Um, and so I, I want us to to tread very carefully um, from this point forward in making sure that all of our children are safe and secure and that all of our children have the benefit of a comfortable and nurturing environment in school and that they can do so in collaboration with their teachers and in collaboration with their school resource officers and together with their parents and administrators and and concerned community members, and we all can be a part of that. Uh, so I encourage you to have discussions, regular discussions, um, go into your schools and be supportive um, and, and offer your shoulder and, and have difficult conversations about how we move forward from this point. Uh, you are now officially certified know-it-alls. Uh, please go forth and share. Have a wonderful week. We will not be here next Tuesday, Christmas Day, but we will be here next Thursday, December 27th, when we will be talking with black male educators about their experiences and about how educators can recruit and hire black men in education. Remember to follow Know-It-All, the ABCs of Education, on Blog Talk Radio. Follow me at Allison R. Brown on Twitter. Find ABC on Facebook and read my blog at AllisonBrownConsulting.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.